Larry Talbot, seeking a way to return to his death to escape his werewolf curse, enlists the help of a group of gypsies. This eventually leads him to an encounter with another famous creature, Frankenstein's monster. Hello everyone, I'm Caleb Bouget. I'm Josh Allred. And welcome to a new episode of Beyond the Bad. Today, we're talking about the Universal Monster film, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. While not normally embraced by critics and fans alike, it has gained some significance thanks to it being the first of the Monster Rally films. Uh, basically, for those who are wondering, one of cinema's first ever crossovers in history. For those who seem to think it only happened with the MCU, nope, happened years, years ago with Universal Monsters. With that, I have Josh here with me again to talk about this. So, Josh, would you like to say anything about Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman? I know you actually rewatched it right before we recorded. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a movie. Um, it's just trying to have a, the, the sensibility in your mind of what you're watching, having the proper context for it, um, is very crucial to watching something that was made almost 80 years ago now. And it. It takes a little understanding of how films are constructed when, what, the 1943 when this came out? Yes. And understanding that you're not going to get something that is going to have a lot of uh, dynamic camera movements and really slick, heavy special effects and editing and stuff like that. So you have to kind of go into that prepared knowing that this movie is not going to wow you with the mechanics or the techniques of filmmaking and that everything that is going to keep you engaged is going to be on screen and it's all right. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I, this was my first time watching this outside of the original films, right? Wolfman, mummy, track, all that stuff. I've seen all the original films. I haven't dwelled too much into the sequels for all these guys, but luckily I got the, the, uh, big old 30 film set. Got lucky on a saw on Amazon one day. So it's a convenient way to <coughs> explore these um these sequels and this stuff. And like I'm with you, like it was okay. You know, I got some things I want to reserve for when we get to the awards and how I feel I don't want to take too much away from it though, because like I said, you know, it seems to be kind of forgotten that here was a cinematic crossover back in nineteen forty three that no one really no one I think ever sat down and went, Oh, I can't wait to see these guys on on the screen. You know, people just went, saw the movie, enjoyed it, went home. And the fact that, they, you know, you could go in this and go, oh, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman? What? And, they, you know, they brought back um, Lon Chaney Jr. to play the Wolfman. We'll get more to who plays Frankenstein's monster later. Um, but, you know, they brought him back. It's it. I'll give it that much. You know, it, it, did, it, it was the first to do something. Well, I think it was right at the – one of the very first conversations where you could have – what monster would beat what monster in a fight. And that 
argument has been happening since forever. Um, especially with comic books and things like that. You know, kids are always having these con conversations and it's one of those that really just put it out there. Even though this movie delays a lot of that up until the very end and it's kind of lackluster. Um, it is, it is definitely one of the one of the first films to bring together two very well known uh, creatures of film and having them in the same space, uh, occupying the same world. And for that, it certainly deserves credit. There are a lot of really good things about this movie. Mm -hmm. um, the set design is production design is very very good, and the way they are able to kind of build up the the world that this movie's taking place in is very well done, which should make sense because this is how movies were made. So the production design should be top notch compared to, you know, if they tried to make something like this nowadays, how that would go about. Mm. Yeah. There's a, before I get into like the questions, I actually got two questions before I get into that though. Um, I do, there's a certain charm. I feel when I watch like these these older like the quote unquote the golden age of Hollywood films, you know what I mean? Um, but when they relied, you know, the camera tricks they would have to do back then, using their use of sets, everything they kind of did to get these films made. There's a certain charm, even in a lackluster one. A certain kind of like joy I get in watching it and seeing like how it was just done back then, watching this bit of like essentially film history, um, and just to see how we've come, almost. In some cases, 100 years later for some films, if you go back to the silent film era, but over 100 years later, how we've come from that. So, you know, it it is in a way, even when I was kind of at points with this film, you know, I'm saying like, oh, okay, I really like this film. I'm not liking this. I'm supposed to be going, I'm watching a really, it's the joy of sitting and watching these types of old school films. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, knowing how the transformation scenes are going to work, which for werewolf movies, that's always the the barometer for how well they are is what the transformation scene is going to look like. And when you have Lon Chaney Jr. playing the Wolfman, it's, it's definitely raised the bar for like how that was going to, and dare I say it even establishes some of the, some of the tropes for the werewolf in that the, the werewolf, is seen as like a curse put upon somebody and they have to bear it like a burden. And in the case of Larry Talbot, when we find him, he spoiler alert, he didn't die at the end of Wolfman. He was just buried in a coffin covered with Wolfsbane and that kept him down. And that is, that's where we find him when the movie starts and he comes back and he's like, I can't die. And that was something that's interesting because you don't see that in like American Werewolf in London, um, dog soldiers, you know, like werewolves are seen as being pretty invulnerable mm -hmm. and only able to be killed in specific ways. Uh, silver is still one of the, one of the tropes that have, that's lasted all the way through this. Uh, even though for Lon Chaney, it's kind of like a scar that he bears, even mm -hmm. though he didn't actually die. It's still something that can hurt him and put him down for a while. Um, 
it it is like you said like watching film history and seeing kind of where these things started and and what has endured over time um where you know frankenstein's monster is something is something else it's been adapted so many times there's been so many different versions of that creature and it's almost become a joke in in some respects with you know like i'm I'm not gonna. I'm not saying this as it's a joke, but like with the monsters and how Herman Munster was, um, you know, seen as like a sitcom dad. You know, when Boris Karloff played him, it was an actual terrifying creature that nobody understood and was terrified of. So it's it's interesting to see like what is established and what is at play in this movie, and then comparing it to what has trickled down through the years and what you get these days yeah that's actually to me a good set of two questions before i do i almost forgot the score for those around why is such a you know quote unquote classic of hollywood cinema on our newest edition of beyond the bed uh, again just the baseline right uh my this is only 12 reviews so apparently past the 12 reviews no one else watched it critically 25 percent but on the audience side of things 5,000 plus reviews 56 a little bit higher in the audience. I just like it a bit more. So there's that. Again, huge description from critics because only 12 people watched it and felt the need to review it on Godot RT. But with that, talking about how with the history of film going now, like I brought up, right, uh, I really kind of thought with my question, let me hone in on what this film does kind of first. And it's, you know, obviously now we have films like Freddy vs. Jason because of, you know, these versus films. Again, with the MCU being a shared universe um, and doing their thing. So with that, I want my question to you would be, what are your thoughts on today's current obsession with cinematic crossovers? And the follow-up to that being, and why do you think, in a way, the Universal Monster films don't really seem to get their their uh, credited due for being one of the earliest attempts at this? So the whole shared universe thing, it's... I don't, it's not something I ever asked for. However, when Marvel started to establish it, because that's, you know, that's the one that everybody holds up as the, as the best standard for it. It was always going to be inevitable that these movies were going to, you know, exist in the same world and they were going to occupy the same space. Um, I think because of the nature of where you're pulling from, it's it's something you have to keep in mind and it could have gone one of two ways it could have tanked horribly looking at you dark universe um or in in the case of what it's been able to do now it's it's endured for what like 20 years it's getting close i know by the time endgame came out that was over a decade yeah so but that takes a lot of a lot of work it takes a lot of passion for what you're dealing with and an understanding that you have to find a way for to make it fit you can't just say like okay i'm gonna have spider-man here i'm gonna have iron man here and 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 it's just gonna work you know you can't because they're all characters that can exist on their own in their own stories because they've had their own comics and they don't always bleed into each other so like you have to be able to make these characters interesting enough that they function on their own in their own stories but also 
within a larger group as you did in the Avengers and how those movies excelled. And then like Guardians of the Galaxy, which is an example of something that was very obscure. obscure. Not a lot of people knew it unless you were very into the comics. Mm -hmm. And even what they did with translating the characters from the comics to the films was handled by somebody, James Gunn, who had, like I said, he had passion. He had a desire to make these characters better than their paper counterparts and to fully flesh them out and make them compelling characters. What Universal had done, it was kind of just, and I don't know the logistics behind it, it was kind of just something that was seen as like, hey, we've got these guys, let's just do this, because back in those early days of film, especially the quote-unquote golden era, actors were more or less crew. They mm -hmm. were tools to be used, and they had them signed up under each studio and they could just get worked there was never like these in the case with marvel and actors how they had like a five movie deal ten movie deal whatever they were contracted out to the studios and they did whatever the studio asked of them or told them to do and a lot of times you got good performances but you also got terrible performances um i think with what you, we got out of lon cheney jr in this movie he was very good um, he continued and expanded on what he brought to the role of Larry Talbot and kind of how he is this tortured person who hates what he is and hates this thing that is attached to him and he's trying to find a way to stop it. He, he doesn't want to be this creature. He, he hates it and he feels remorse for the things that happen when the creature comes out of him. Um, and it's it's a very interesting way to observe that. And I think that's one of the things I've always enjoyed about the werewolf as a character and how you can use it is to kind of explore that that inner animal in all of us and how, you know, being having your emotions control you and come out of you and you don't have a way to control them at all. It's it's an interesting metaphor to work with. And I think the Wolfman's always been good for that. Um, with shit, can you, uh, what was your second question again? Oh, uh, no problem. The second question was like, why do you think it, it just feels like universal doesn't really seem to get their due with this. So why do you think that has I, happened? I think that has more to do with the fact that people are ignorant of history. I think if they understood what, what had happened prior to any of this, they would know that this is not a new thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were also doing things where they had the Abbott and Costello movies mm -hmm. where they were going through and meeting individual uh, universal monsters. Mm -hmm. So even that is an expansion of the, for lack of a better word, the universal universe of actors and characters and having them play within the same within the same worlds even though it was more like a serialized kind of thing and i don't know that any of them actually depended one depended on the other mm -hmm. um i would have to to re-watch them to fully understand that but even even still it's been something that has existed long before mm -hmm. anything else that you know marvel and disney and whomever has tried to make their own now um and and i just think that's people not understanding the the basics of film history and what's come before it not only that 
like I said at the beginning of this, this is a conversation that every kid, especially horror kids and monster kids, like they have this conversation all the time. I remember having these conversations when I was a kid talking about like Freddy versus Jason and before the movie even came out. Um, you know, would Michael Myers beat fucking uh, Ghostface or you know, any of these things? You know, you just do this. Not only, not only that, the Godzilla movies were, you had like independent Mothra movies and then they're working together. King Kong and Godzilla came together in a movie. So like, this is not a new trend that we're seeing with Marvel and them being successful because it's something that has always existed in film. So yeah, it goes back to my original answer of they're just ignorant of history. Yeah, no, I'm I'm with you on that part. You know, and this is not to put like a film snuff cap on, but one of my one of my pet peeves, to an extent, being a, a big a lover of film, is when people say like I can't watch a certain film, a films past a certain decade because they're too cheesy. I mean, they're too corny. I'm like, well, then you're missing out on film history, and you're you're missing out like like you were talking about. You know, like I'm not, and this is not me. You know, I know both of us are big MCU fans, so this is not us putting down the MCU in any way. Um, but like you said, that when you think about it, it was a culmination of almost a century's buildup in a way, right? Because you had the Universal Monsters kind of do it first, and then you had, you know, even directors that do it. Like Tarantino always puts in little things about how his films connect to each other and stuff. And that was back in the 90s. Um, even outside of film, like Stephen King in, in the in the reading for you know, book format has always been very open about how his stuff is one big universe. Um, so it's, it's been like this thing that's has always kind of been there. You said been there throughout the years. We've seen it a couple of times here and there. Like I said, obviously, you know, something like Freddy versus Jason that came out after, I think it was like, what, a decade or so of just being stuck in development finally came out. And for some people, they loved it. Some people hate it. I'm, I'm a big fan of it myself. Um, but, you know, we finally got that cinematic clash. And I think with, with like, at least with the MCU, you know, I, like I said, I know everyone uses the gold standard, especially because DC is still struggling. Um, but I think it, they just hit at the right time. You know, I think that comic book wise, they hit at the right time of people just kind of seeing like, okay, we had X-Men, we had Spider-Man. And that was kind of it. Like, you know, a, for all those good films you got at that time for comic book films, you got a Daredevil with Ben Affleck. So it's like when that came out and people just went in troves to see it. And then also they're saying, oh, hey. You know, join the Avengers Initiative. We all remember that post-credit scene in the first Iron Man now. And it as the, and you saw that, hey, there's this very confident hand in making sure, like you said, the passion from everyone involved in saying, let's make this a thing. And it's paid off to the point that it's still an ongoing thing. I have some, some beef with some of the more recent films, and Marvel might be resting on its lowers a bit. But time will tell when we get uh, more films next year and beyond. Um... Yeah, it's always to me just it's like you said it's been there. I think we've just seen it kind of explode in a much more mainstream or big way in more recent years. Yeah, and anytime, especially with Hollywood, anytime an idea sells and it's making boatloads of money, then they're going to push it harder. They're going mm -hmm. to make more of it, and you're going to get just inundated with everything connecting to everything and. That's just what, you know, they, they don't understand that you don't need the homogenization of your market of movies in order to make something that is interesting and will get asses and seats. You should just find something that's interesting, foster it, give it as many, give it, give it as much 
in the way of resources and people that you can that are going to make it good and just do that. Um, I think something like Terrifier 2 that is coming out of nowhere as far as the majors are concerned, making the money that it's been making is amazing. And it's, and it's testament to, you know, giving something a chance and just letting things like word of mouth and the internet be your advertisement. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot to be said for that. Mm -hmm. And for those in the, in the world of horror movies and loving horror movies and things like that, it's always about sharing that and going, dude, you have to see this. Have you seen this? No, you got to see this. Well, wait, if you like this, you need to go check out this. Mm -hmm. And it's all about that word of mouth. It's all about passing things along. And I think it's, for me at least, it's infinitely more enjoyable to come across something that way than to have the next 45 movies or whatever that come out all essentially having the same skeleton. Mm -hmm. It's just wearing different skin when it's when it's in front of you. Yeah. No, I'm actually glad I brought because I was going to bring up Terrifier 2 myself because I saw that pretty much after we went to go see Halloween Ends and then I saw uh, Black Adam. And it's amazing. You have two... You know, studio-backed, big things. They had all the advertising, marketing, and the award, right? And this is my personal opinion, so not, no, no offense to anyone that did like these films. I left supremely disappointed, damn near pissed off at Halloween Ends. And Black Adam with me just going, meh. I was like, this is an okay film. Finally had the chance to go see Terrifier 2, because thank God it got, you know, the word of mouth extended it to a third weekend. Took my chance to finally go see it. Walked weeks amazingly happy i was enthused even with it's admittedly quite long runtime i was entertained the whole time and i'm like see like because the difference was I f with halloween is and there's uh, well okay there's a lot of things if you want to look back on what david gordon david gordon green has said in interviews on why we got what we got with halloween is I'm not going into that now but like black adam yeah i felt like the rock was passionate and was definitely showing his performance i can't really attest watching that film that anyone else was nearly as passionate as him and then with Terrifier 2, though, watching it and going back to what we talked about earlier, right, with this shared universe and passion, you felt everyone was passionate about it. Not just Damien Leone. Obviously, he was. He worked very hard to get that film done. But everyone else, from the uh, the actors and anyone else who was helping him behind, I know he does a lot of it himself, but obviously the crew members he did have to help him out. And obviously, Bloody Disgusting, you know, backing in and doing what they can to get it out there. You felt the passion from everyone involved, and it shows in the final product. Oh, absolutely. Um, and at least for me, um, being somebody that went to film school and learned to appreciate the the construction of a movie and kind of how how that can play into your your experience watching it and things like that. You, I guess once you learn how the sausage is made, you you always see these movies differently than you would if you were just purely consuming them, if that makes sense. Um, so I always, I'm probably, if you're not a movie like fan and you don't understand the construction of movies, I'm probably the worst person to watch a movie with because I will, I will say a lot more than I probably should during a, like watching a movie. And so it's kind of funny that that happens. Um, but whatever, it's just, I can't, I can't do that anymore. Like I, I can't turn it off. It's <coughs> something I can just 
I can just switch off when I watch a movie, even though I do my hardest to uh, to do that. You know, it, it's hard. It, it's I know for me, I went to my film school was like very like practical. Like they taught you how to like practically, you know, parts of the film, not necessarily theoretical, but it is hard because I already had an interest in it before I even went to film school. Like, oh, how they make this one? How they how to consume bonus features? Go on the you know internet and look stuff up. And then I was film school. They teach teach more now. I'll be watching. Oh, okay, that's probably how they pull that off. Oh, that's probably how they pulled it off. Type of thing. It just it's hard to switch off. So I get what you're saying there. Yeah. Um, but that's about all I got. So unless you have anything more to add, we got an interesting development hell to dig into. Let's get our shovels. Start digging. Hopefully, I won't dig a hole for myself this time. Uh, that's always a chance. There's always a chance that's going to happen. Every day is a new day and a new hole for you to dig. I would say it's 50-50, but it's usually like 70-30. I was going to go more 80-20. I day. hate you. <laughs> All right. So starting off, this R, believe it or not, starts with a vehicle. Curtis. Siad Mac. Thank you. Siad Mac. Discussed the development of the film once producer George Ragnar proposed the title to him. Sad Mac explained he wanted to purchase a new car and needed a writing job to afford it. So Ragnar told him to buy the car as he had two hours to write the script. That sounds like a recipe for a great movie to get written. I Look, I've had quite a few enjoyable experiences on Development Hill looking up some of these films. I don't think I've had one that started out with the guy wanted a car. Well, I mean, you... Like, writers, that's what they do. They write, and a lot of them were writing for jobs. I mean, still to this day, there are people that make their money just writing spec scripts, stuff that never gets made, but that's how they keep the lights on. Um, and for a writer, it's a it's a way to continue to exercise their muscles and get something out there. Now, most often the case, the things that they're very passionate about, stuff that they want to make and see made, they will usually keep those closer to the best, but that's mm. a, a passing idea that they have, and they're like, "Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll bang out a treatment for this and see what somebody likes about it. And if they want to get it from me, they can buy it from me. Do I necessarily want to be involved all the way to the end? Probably not. But if I can, can get this and you know put a down payment on a car or whatever, then yeah, I'll do it. Mm. Um, now I will say that window, two hours, and you have somebody like Kurt Sodmack who had written a lot of really good movies. Um, over the years, the fact that he had that window and he could bang out a script that, and think about this, it probably wasn't, probably wasn't writing this longhand. He was definitely typing this out. So that's another fucking amazing uh, feat that you could pull off. And because uh, I'm sure anybody that's listening to this, if you were born any time after the year 2000, Oh, God, it makes me feel so old. Um, you probably have only seen typewriters in TV shows and in museums and have no idea what the hell they are. So, yeah, it's it's pretty awesome. Yeah, I'm glad you fold. I'm, I'm younger, so yes. Uh, don't, don't look at me like that. It's too bad people can't, you know, can't see us because they would definitely be able to be like, no, they would know what your mustache that you're the older one. No, no. This yeah, is, it, it ages you so much. This is dignity. What are you talking about? No, when Tom Selleck has his, it's dignity. You... No, no. When Tom Selleck has a mustache, that's horny. <laughs> There's only one thing you're thinking about when you're looking on that. It's like, what is the mileage on that bad boy? 
for him a lot. Yeah, yeah. How many times has he been turned into a seat cushion? Every time. Like McDonald's, billions and billions served. Just saying. I wish, I wish I could have a mustache like fucking Tom Selleck. Are you kidding me? I mean, I wish I could have one too like that. I, I can't grow one out like that. <sighs> My hair hates me. Um, Thinking of the script thing you mentioned, that actually brings me up. Uh, I know you listened to the recent uh, postmortem, correct, with Tommy Lee Wallace. Yes. The story he told about John Carpenter telling someone, oh, I got a script I'll have to you by Monday and had actual no script and then knocked it out over a weekend, a full fucking script, and was like, here you go. Like, I don't, like, the power with writing that some of these people, like, you know, Carpenter and Sarah Mac have to just be like, oh, I got this much time, hold my beer. And they just whip, a, not even an outline, not like, you know, a spec thing, just an entire, let's just say, 120-page-ish script, right? 90 to 120 pages, standard time, right? Just knock it out and be like, here you go, done. Well, I, like I said, that shows that they have an ability to uh, write in that format. Screenwriting is a very difficult format to write in, and I hope to get a lot more familiar with it now that I will have some time to be able to put into it. And I think um, when you constantly write in that way, it's just it's muscle memory, um, and when you're constantly communicating your ideas in that format um it's it's like second nature um i think the funny thing that tommy lee wallace mentioned about that is that like he had like a six pack of buds and he was just getting hammered typing this thing out and they made a commercial out of it like that's that to me is even funnier mm -hmm. that like john carpenter the creative genius that he is managed to get something out of that so um yeah i mean writer's right that's that's what they do. Um, so, I mean, yeah, it's it's still impressive. I mean, mm -hmm. to be able to bang something like that out. And for anybody that is interested in pursuing writing as a profession in any capacity, whether it's as a journalist or a creative writer or a novelist or an essayist or nonfiction or whatever format, like giving yourself uh, restrictions or guidelines or deadlines is the only way that you're going to make yourself better because you're constantly putting yourself under these restraints or constraints and you have to you have to produce mm -hmm. um for some people it's too nerve-wracking and you're gonna fucking crumble under that shit but so be it like you you still have to be able to work within that because within those boundaries that you've set up you, there are almost limitless possibilities with what you can create yeah. And for some people, that motivation is getting a car. Yep. Someone's getting a car. For John Carpenter, you just get him a six-pack of bud. He's good to go. As, we, as we've as we learned, is kind of a recurring thing in some of his screenwriting stories. Um, where to talk? Okay. I almost lost my place. All right. So, he, did, he knocks this thing out in two hours, right? Now, it also helped him, because he was involved with the Wolfman prior, that the Wolfman made nearly $1 million at the box office. Again, I like to do this every time we talk about this because people think that's not a lot because we live in today's inflation ward. In 19, well, this movie came in 43, Wolfman was 41. That's At that time, that is a shit ton of money. Especially when those are World War happening at that time. 
So that is very impressive amount of money. Um, I, are you, do you want to look up the conversion to I am, today's? I okay. am looking at it right now. See. Good. While you do that, I'll just plow forward as I always do. Uh, so, uh, obviously, with this being Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, it would merge the two stories of both Wolfman and Frankenstein, title characters, um, with the former uh, Wolfman taking place in the present, as we see it, it's a direct sequel, and the latter, we come to find out, when I was typing this, set in a much earlier era. So apparently they're in two completely different eras. What do you mean two different eras? So I, they probably try to explain away with the, the icing, with him being frozen. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But apparently how they wrote it was like they initially had it written to where Frankenstein was very much like early, like probably 18, 1700s. And Wolfman was like directly after that first film. And somehow they're in the same universe. And they were like, hopefully people don't notice. Okay, so uh, the Wolfman's budget back then was $180,000, which today would be just over $3.6 million. And on the million dollars that it made at the box office, that would have been the equivalent of $20 million. So by any metric, the Wolfman was a fucking hit. So anything that they were printing their own money as far as, you know, what they could have done with any movie featuring the Wolfman after that. And probably the same goes with Dracula. So, or Frankenstein's monster, like any of those were cash cows. That's why these movies still exist to this day. Like, and they never were just dumped and lost forever. Like they were extremely popular movies that made horror kind of, a, a household name and shit like that. You know, like the fact that these movies, even after 20 years, were shown on the newfangled invention, the television, and had horror hosts like Vampira showing these movies is a testament to their legacy and the fact that they have endured through the decades to get here and the fact that we're still talking about them now. It, it's, it says something. Um, so yeah, that is quite amazing. Yeah. Now, it, I mean, think about it now, you know, we watched this through my Blu-ray set I got not that long ago, you know, now they're putting them out on 4k. So, I mean, they're still, they're still putting out, they're still remastering to make them look as great as they can. And because people are still buying it. People like myself, young horror fans that even though I was born in 92, you know, I was fascinated with watching these things and being like, oh, what are the, I need to watch these classic horror movie monsters. You know, it also helped that, again, we more 92, the Brendan Fraser cinematic masterpiece as The Mummy was out. So then that was like, ooh, this was a remake of this? I want to check the original out. So come at me for anyone that doesn't think The Mummy with Brendan Fraser is a cinematic masterpiece, because it is. He's not that tough, guys. Go get him. I'm going to just find a way to write you out of the, out of the show now. Um, are you just going to have a bunch of bleeps or farts for all of my lines? Is that what you're going to try and do? Probably. Well, you know what you should do since you do enough of it. You should just hide them with all your coughs. All right, moving on. As I mentioned earlier, so originally 
he wrote it, and it probably has to do with the fact that he did it in two hours, did not take into account separate time periods for the two characters. Now, I think that was part of the rewrites when you see Frankenstein frozen in the ice. That's probably how they worked around. I was like, oh, do that real quick so we can just match it up the best we can. But the theory on why they think this happened was that um, it's believed no one noticed or cared at Universal because they had begun targeting their films too much in their audience. So it's believed that Universal saw that and went, ah, we don't give a shit. The kids aren't going to notice. Just put the damn film out. Because, I mean, yes, this is the second Wolfman film. But for those who don't know, this is like the fifth or sixth Frankenstein film. Like, there was at least four or five other Frankenstein films before we got this one. So on the Frankenstein end of it, it was kind of like, okay, yeah, let's let's pump this one out. We've done, this is like our sixth one. And then some initial plans they had for this film before we got what we got. So their initial plan for a film, which was cleverly titled originally, wait for it. Are you ready? Wolfman meets Frankenstein. Holy shit! How they, how they, how they come up with the banger that is Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. I know, right? Where did they get the inspiration from? It's not like in the English language you generally want to go alphabetically when you list things, but you know. I would love. The- I will say kudos to to you, fucking Kurt Sodmack, for going against the grain. I would love the idea that they're having a meeting where they just don't like the title. And some young guys like looking at it like, what if we just, hear me out guys, we flip it. Frank's time meets the Wolfman. And everyone thought it was the best idea. And they went, yep, that, we're doing it. That is a gold ideal. We will sell this film so much better now. Now, within this initial script, believe it or not, Lon Jane Jr. being the man... And performer that he was. Universal. Well and also probably Universal. Wanting to save money. uh, Was hoping to have him portray both. Frankenstein's monster and the Wolfman. What? Yeah that was the original plan. I don't like that at all. I don't like it either. But that's what they were hoping for. Hmm. Oh and uh, just. Just so we're keeping everything straight. Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Is the fifth movie featuring Frankenstein's monster. Okay, because I think it follows you Ghost have, of Frankenstein. Yes. You have Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, Son of Frankenstein, Ghost of Frankenstein, Frankenstein meets Wolf. There we go. It's hard to keep track. The set has it the way the set... It... Look, all you need to know is Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. The best one-two punch of movies ever. Ever, ever, ever. And Bride of Frankenstein, to me... Is better What's that? than Frankenstein. Just putting that out there. No, I'm with you. I, I find Brighter Frank. I like Frankenstein a lot, but Brighter Frankenstein is a case of a superior sequel, in my opinion. Oh, hell yeah. It is, in the words of Scott Wampler, it's a banger. Scott Wampler of KingCast. I love the way that guy talks about movies. Kind of kind of aspire to be able to do that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to uh, judiciously borrow one of his words. It's oh. a banger. Better hope and be like that because you're not getting any younger. All right. Still look better than you. He's only better than you. He's single, ladies. You hear that? Yeah, keep going back to that. Well, by the way, this terrible idea they had 
again, I'm thinking just to probably save them some money because as we talked about, what you mentioned earlier, so you don't know, again, actors were like crew. They were contracted to the studio, not what like Robert Downey Jr. did to get like as highly paid as he did on in the MCU once he got Iron Man. Back then, not happening. It would be ultimately trapped, claiming for two reasons. First, the concerns of the intricate effects wouldn't be effective. Which, yeah, when you have someone doing both of the characters, maybe not that effective. And also, the physical strain that would be placed on Chaney himself. I don't know if that's necessarily the studio giving two shits, because as we've learned in old Hollywood, they didn't really care about the actors all that much. And how much that is like Chaney, like, I'm not doing it. That's too much strain on me. I like to think it's that one. Yeah. It's uh, very much so. Um, because you also have to think of the logistics of this. Like, like the poster is advertising, there's going to be a fight. You can't have Lon Chaney doing both bits. And that, it, that just wouldn't happen. And even though you, yeah, you could just say, oh, if you put a guy in a suit, and blah, 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 whatever, you know, give him some platforms and put the makeup on him, it'll be fine. Nobody will notice. It's, it's just not feasible. Just not feasible. Not, not feasible at all. No, and I'm don't get me wrong. They pull off some impressive stuff in the golden age of Hollywood, but I don't think that would have been pulled off convincingly. One bit. Um, as for the man himself, Cheney. He himself actually originally insisted on playing only Frankenstein's monster. Believe it or not, he did not want to play the Wolfman. Um, and Universer did briefly consider one of the people on the, they had on a contract, an uh, actor by the name of Jack Corson, to play um, Larry Talbot instead. I, I still don't know why you would want to take Larry Talbot... And give that character to somebody else. Because to me, Lon Chaney Jr. is Larry Talbot. It's weird. It's, it's, weird. Weird. it's weird that he was like at first insistent, like, I only want to play Frankenstein's monster. Well, I mean, you've seen the fucking getup he had to wear. Even though he, it was really just covering his hands and feet and face, primarily in makeup. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, yeah, well, luckily, Cheney would reconsider, and he did end up playing the role of Talbot after all. Whatever happened to Jack Carson, I don't know. Sorry for any Jack Carson fans out there. Also of note, I did want to include this. It's a little bit of a downer, but it must be included. Oh, here we go. I don't know what that's supposed to mean. For many, this name should be familiar for your, if you love Universal Monster movies. But the actor, Dwight Fry, uh, this would be his final film to his, due to his untimely death shortly after this film's release. So this would be his last appearance in the Universal Monster Picture and in film in general. It is very sad. Yeah, see, what, what were you expecting when you said, here we go? I don't know. I, was... I don't know. Yeah, see, I was honoring someone in you. I, I bring class to this joint somehow because the bar is very low. Oh, that... Okay, let's just move on. The climactic battle that lasts like five minutes. <laughs> Sorry. And you know what? 
My comment also stands for Halloween ends. Just go fuck yourself, Halloween ends. Uh, the climactic battle between the two monsters would prove difficult to film. Uh, with Bella Lugosi, who plays Frankenstein's monster, for those who don't know. Um, not um, Boris Koloff this time. But with Bella Lugosi collapsing at one point due to exhaustion from the 35 pounds of makeup he wore. I mean... Look, I'll give him credit for doing that. But also, Jack Pierce, who's the special effects guy and the originator of the Wolfman makeup and the whole transformation process, um, he's like one of the godfathers of special effects makeup. Like, you think about, if there's like a Mount Rushmore for that, you'd have like Jack Pierce, Dick Smith, Savini. Rob Burton. Burton. Maybe. Maybe, but you also had to think about Rick Baker, Stan Winston. Like, there's so mm. many, you know, like, it, it would probably have to be a fucking mountain chain at that point. Um, but, yeah, it's like, Jack Pierce is one of the godfathers of special effects makeup. And the, thinking about what 35 pounds of makeup would would have been like is insane. Because he probably had to wear something around his body, his upper body, to bulk up. Um, and then just the application that went on his head. Uh, the fucking boots are probably terrible. Um, not unlike Bela Lugosi playing the monster, but we'll get there. Um, that's what's next, but go yeah, on. Yeah, it's, uh, that would, that, that would, that would be a strain on anybody. So yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised to hear that. Yeah, no, it, it's funny, you know, uh, we've talked, I know, you know, having gone to conventions and, you know, actors talking about their experiences stuff. And in general, watching bonus features, it's funny. You always hear, like, people think the world of acting is so glamorous. And to an extent, it is. Like, you know, it, it is to an extent. But people don't take into account things like this when they're putting on this pounds and pounds of makeup. Or, like, you know, for a recent example, the new Hellraiser. I can talk about because I know you just recently saw it yourself. But, you know, they, to, you know, the, the body suits they, they had to wear, that took hours to put on. Even if it is light and stuff, it took hours to put on. Sometimes when they get it on, those things get uncomfortable because depending on the 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 type of stuff they're using to make these suits, they can collect sweat and get like just un- beyond uncomfortable. Um, well, yeah, I mean Jim Carrey famously talked about his uh, his whole Grinch getup and how miserable he was in that. But I mean, you suffer for your art, do you not? And Dare I say his performance in The Grinch was fucking amazing. So, like, you know, it's you you, ha- you have to give these actors nothing but props. It's not it's not just this, you know, such a lofty job that they do, and it's 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 not without its 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 shortcomings and its terrible days and its dangerous moments because you know there have been people who have passed out doing that kind of shit. So, like. Mm-hmm. All the credit in the world. All the credit in the world. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Or, like, what is it? You hear the story about, like, on Day of the Dead, when he gets ripped in half, Captain Words, and you hear about the whole story with that, and how it was, like, starting to smell. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you start using the same guts over and over again, you know, and you're you're working out in the heat. Actual guts in the heat, they don't mix. (laughs) And what happens? They break down. And what happens when things break down? They stink. And, uh, yeah, you know, um, Joe Pilato fucking 
like a champ though like he mm-hmm. he did it even though that look of horror is probably oh my god these things fucking stink can we please finish this already you know probably why he was telling him to choke on him because he's like i don't want to have these around me anymore you choke on them probably or like what uh the contacts that they were in hollywood and i was like well i wore contacts and i'm like no the ones they wear that change their eye color and half the time are hard and suck the yeah. fucking moisture out of your eye yeah those were the kind that uh jim gary wore like they covered his whole eye the mm. whole fucking thing fuck, yeah fuck so fuck, not pointing out anyone who wants to pursue a career in acting but just know it's not all glamorous no no no, oh. no. For, for every amazing monologue oscar worthy monologue air quotes you get you're you're going to have to do some some hard stuff especially if you're starring in a horror film but with that talking about actors let's let's talk about bella lugosi in regards to the segment of the podcast um so for those who probably who have seen these films and notice especially in bride towards the end frankenstein's monster speaks I'm sure he spoke in the sequels. I have not watched them myself yet. But um, if you notice by this film, the fifth film, he is no longer speaking. And there is a reason. Three scenes were actually shot with the monster having dialogue. So they were they were scenes of fellow ghostly talking. They would be removed, however, after a test screening, which caused the staff on hand to burst into laughter anytime Bella Ghostly spoke as the monster. Um, from what I was hearing, his Hungarian accent wasn't going away. And I guess it caused them to just burst into laughter. Well, that is that is something that plagued Bela Lugosi throughout his career. Um, it was kind of a soft spot for him, too. Um, he hated that that kind of kept him from getting other roles. And that's actually kind of sad that they cut all that stuff out and were laughing about it um because you know like the guy can't help it you Mm -hmm. know even as good of an actor as you can be like there are going to be certain things that you just can't hide Mm -hmm. it you're you're a human being you're not a robot you can't just flip switches and get programmed to speak a different way um i think i think i think that one of the things that was way more troubling about Bella's performance had nothing to do with him acting. It was just the way he carried himself as the character. Um, and I guess when we get to the award stuff, I can elaborate a little bit more. Yes, but I will actually elaborate even more about Lugosi here. So, the way he walks. Apparently, when they removed these scenes of dialogue, it removed any mention of the revived monster being blind. So I guess there was dialogue explaining... And being blind, they took out the scenes, they took that away, and then next thing you know, he's doing what he's doing, you're just going, what, basically you ask him, what the fuck is he doing? Um, but that, yeah, that's what is being claimed here. Well, that actually was something that happened in Ghost of Frankenstein. Um, the monster, by the end of that, does get blinded. So, kudos to them for maintaining some continuity, and even though I'd only figured that out from looking up the uh the movie just a minute ago and and seeing that that was one of my biggest gripes when i was watching the movie i was like open your open your eyes bella just open your eyes you'll be able to see where you're going and you could see a couple of times like he's like cheating and like opening his eyes to kind of see where he's at 
and, and for the blocking and whatnot, I guess. But yeah, that makes sense. Or it's it's like cheating, but I don't get too much into it now. But it's like you see where he like he like lifts his head back so much. It's almost like he's opening the eyelid a bit to see, and you can kind of tell. And you're like, I know what you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> it's like I get it. Um, now this is more theories, but I want to go ahead and touch on them because these are always fun. There has been at least two other theories regarding the speaking thing. It sounds like what I just talked about is very much what's true. That's what has been recounted in various texts and books covering these films of the time. But there are also more theories, so why not have some fun, right? Um, the first one is talking about how the apparently the dialogue involved a bunch of talk about war domination. So they were in things of that nature. So as we know, this was 1943. There was World War II coming on uh, at the time, and I believe, if my history is correct, we were getting ready to. We were in the war at that time, or entering. It, yes, we were. We were. We were in the war. We were in. The, obviously, I know it was. Yeah, we were in the war at that time. So the studios, decide, the theories that they wanted to go ahead and remove it, so not to remind audiences too much of the ongoing World War. That's one theory. The other theory. Is that apparently the the dialogue itself was just too confusing at times? I guess he referred to himself as we, or then I, and got really I guess existential quote unquote for that time. And they were like, ah, fuck it, that's too confusing, take it out. I mean, I guess it's a combination of things. I would imagine um, removing the the lingering specter of World War was probably a true thing, um, along with the fact that. Bella's dialogue delivery probably wasn't the best. And they decided that they're just going to get rid of it. Um, so, yeah, it, it is probably a combination of things. So, Yeah. I, I've i learned with these theories, like, it's kind of like what you're saying, like, so I've covered other theories in prior episodes and stuff. It's usually, like, a little nugget of each one is true. Like, and it kind of leads to the overall actual truth of what happened. It's never like, this one's fully true. or this. It's usually, like, now, a little bit of that one's true, and, you know, it relates to this one, and so on and so forth. So, um, but with that, I'm actually now on to the reception of the film. So, kind of a little bit of what we talked about earlier, right? At the time, um, it was best described as a lukewarm reception. So, people, you know, they went in droves, because obviously it's it has been proven to this day, hey, you got two cinematic titans in the same movie, people are going to go see it. Now, did they like it? You know, that's at that point, that's up to you when you go see it, right? Um, many critics, again, the 12 that took the time to actually fucking put it on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, cited the Reek script and disappointing final fight as the biggest distractors. I want to say that I don't actually think the script's Reek. I'll get into the fight later. <laughs> but I didn't find that for a script that took two hours, I'm not going to say a week. I have seen both scripts. That have taken longer to write and had more writers and, yeah four writers halloween ends nonetheless wow <laughs> zinger um again like i said this was the first of the monster rally films this would lead to many more crossovers with universals a string of sequels would follow with other their horror guys getting in on it like i said eventually to the point where abbott and costello would pop up so this did lead to a string of like hey let's get these guys together it's getting people in, into the theater um well no and even with that in mind that's the short-term effect right hey that's what happened short-term long-term like we talked about um to this day 
it's still felt, right? I mean, you have things like Freddy vs. Jason, King Kong vs. Godzilla, Godzilla vs. Kong, you know, the, re the more recent remake. Obviously, like we talked about, the cinematic, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, whatever the D DC has been trying to do, hopefully gets on track with the recent news. Um, but it's still felt to this day. Um, so, you know, yeah, you know, it may have, it may have had a lukewarm response. Many people kind of consider the film to, they often blame it for the decline and demise of the cinematic universal monsters at that time. But at the end of the day, it, it left, it's, it's like I talked about before with like legs before with like Connor and like Austin and stuff in the podcast. When I said, you know, to, uh, we had to talk about that, like say we wrote about Rob Zombie's output and how you feel about it, but he left his, his legacy, his mark wit. House Thousand Corpses with Devil's Rejects. Same can be said here. Take what you were out of it. You know, not my favorite of what I've seen out of Universal Monster films, but it's left a mark that's still being felt to this very day in 2022. Yeah, absolutely. Um, these movies are still being talked about and looked at for a reason. So, mm -hmm. I mean, if you can't enjoy this movie, because, I mean, there there is plenty to enjoy about this, um the good and the very bad, um, which I'll be able to elaborate on once we get to the awards section. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, these movies are collected and restored for a reason. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So with that, that is all I got on, uh, one of our more, not on most beefy. I think on most beefy beyond the bad is still the dark tower. Um, but one of our beefier, Beyond the bats. Um, unless you got anything else you'd like to add, we can finally move on to awards. Kind of talk about what several things we've been alluding to. Yeah, no, let's go ahead and get to these awards. Let's do it. So first up, Zack Snyder. I got nothing this week for him. Uh, the worst scene. <laughs> Would you pick? Uh, my worst scene is that whole festival musical number <laughs> that just like it sticks out like a sore thumb in the entire thing and takes up so much time from actually having an actual fight at some point in this movie that it, it it could totally be removed and you would you wouldn't really miss much um there is one decent moment where um this guy's like singing to uh Lon Chaney Jr and I don't remember the line he gave him but he was like oh he was trying to say he was going to bless him with eternal life and he looked at him and was like why would you do that I don't want to live forever you know so like that's probably the only worthwhile bit part of the whole thing, but yeah, it's it's totally totally worthless. It doesn't need to be in the movie. And when it came on, when you and I were watching it, I I was literally like, "What the fuck is this? When did we get a musical?" I was not expecting that. I was not consulted, and I I'm slightly offended right now. I can't believe in the middle of a Frankenstein meets the Wolfman movie. That was literally advertised on the poster as the two monsters fighting each other. You have a bunch of jackasses and lederhosen fucking dancing around and singing. Get the fuck out of here. I want monsters in my monster movie. Call me crazy. I'm trying not to laugh. It made me laugh when we were war watching this together. Because this scene just happens and you're like, what the fuck? And then hearing you. Look, I'll say it right now. I love so much when we do watch from here and you don't like something because you're a very loud person <laughs> or you're not very loud. You're vocal. <laughs> so it's like, and then I just get the enjoyment of like hearing your, what you're saying. Like when we go watch Halloween and just hearing your, your comments next to me, I was just dying. 
throughout the movie. And yeah, when this happened, I'm like, oh, yep, Josh doesn't like this part. <laughs> it's, it just, it, it made no, it made no damn sense. And I am perfectly okay <coughs> with absurd moments and throwing people curveballs and keeping people on their toes. Like, I have no problem with that. But this one just did not fucking do it for me. And yeah, like I said earlier in the episode, I am probably the worst person, depending on how you take it, to watch a movie with. Because yeah, I will do shit like that. And yes, during Halloween Ends, I was saying a lot of like, what the fuck is it? What? Oh yeah, the band geeks. Yeah, they're going to be the fucking bullies in this movie. Right. Okay. That makes sense. You Just... I, I couldn't help it. Um, I, I, I try to be gate. well. I try to be respectful when I'm in a theater because I don't want people talking and blabbing and ruining my experience. So like I try to keep it down, but sometimes it just slips and I can't help it. So at least you enjoy it. I do. Uh, I still think the the best was when we went to watch Shagas Fireworks. I don't think you stopped laughing the moment that movie started. No, until like the very end. <laughs> no, dicks are funny, and I'm always gonna laugh no matter what. And especially people hurting themselves, I'm going to laugh. And those kind of movies, especially, are made for those kind of reactions. If you're not actively engaged in a movie like that, you're fucking dead, as far as I'm concerned. Well, it worked for me because that was my second time watching it. Because you were you were on your one of your like out to see underway things when it came out, so I went to go watch it myself because like I gotta watch this. And I remember I was laughing my ass off the first time. Just me like, oh my god, it's so funny. And then when you came out, I was like, and you were like, hey, you want to go see Jackass? I was like, fuck yeah, I want to go see it again. <laughs> and I watched it, and it made it just as funny for me, having seen it, knowing all the shit that was going to come up. But having you respond so enthusiastically to it made it better for me the second time around. So it kind of worked out for me in that regard. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad I could make you happy. Don't let it get to your head. Uh, just kidding. But uh, that is a good scene because you're right. It comes out of fucking nowhere. My scene, and this is something that admittedly, I, I would say old Hollywood does it all the time, but Hollywood still does it. Because anytime they just fill in, they just start explaining shit that I'm already watching and don't, don't need to be explained to, especially when I'm watching like a sequel. And that's the scene where the doctor starts explaining to the inspector about Talbot being a lycanthrope and going through all the lycanthrope shit. And I'm like, okay, look, this is your second Wolfman movie. And I don't, I, stop. I don't need you to, I, I watched the first one. I know, I'm assuming most people in 1943, who saw this, watched the first one. They know. So please stop explaining his lycanthropy to me. I know. So I'm watching this movie. This would be a uh, gratuitous exposition <laughs> uh, drive-in total, for sure. Yeah, it. I said, I mean, Hollywood still does it. It does, but like, it does. That is the one thing. I, as much as I love watching like old older films, right? Old classic Hollywood films, quote unquote. They do it a lot, and I get the time was different. It was just how they wrote scripts back then. Different time, different place, and I get it, but it it's funny to watch sometimes. We were like, all right, no, I, I got it, movie. I'm I'm watching. I got it. Well, yeah, and, and, and it is definitely a byproduct of the era in which it was made. Uh, a lot of narrative film is constructed that way, and it's it's hidden a little better these days. 
um, mostly because audiences are a lot more savvy and they don't need to be handed everything. However, with the way that Hollywood movies and mainstream movies in general are made, um, they are always going to be like spoon feeding you information uh, in the form of exposition or somebody getting a book and looking at it and being like, oh, what does this book say? Oh, this book says blah, 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 blah. Oh, here's a picture of what a werewolf's butthole looks like. you got to be sure to look for the butthole because that's the only place that you can stab and kill a werewolf. You really like, honed in on the asshole. <laughs> I, look, I was, I was going for something that was going to be funny and I thought it was funny. You laughed. Hopefully, whoever's listening to this, you laugh, and if you do, let me know, so that way I can rub it in Caleb's face. The joke, not my actual butthole. <laughs> That's only for when you're sleeping. I'm not sleeping tonight. <laughs> no, it, I, I was talking, I've talked about this, uh, um, you know, when you were, when you were going with Connor and Austin, but like, how, what was it, that, that period in time when all horror films were like, let's hire an actor, like... Vincent D'Onofrio, someone big, someone everyone knows. He's going to be in one scene in the movie, and he is basically going to be called in via Zoom and explain the entire fucking plot of this film to us and what this this big bad is that we're tackling, and then he's going to disappear. And I'm like, why did we do that? Why? It's 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 so goddamn annoying. Like, like Sinister, right? I, I think it's a great film. I enjoy the shit out of it. But my God, anytime he does those Zoom calls with... Vincent D'Onofrio, and he's, like, explaining to him, like, I feel like you could have found a better way. Um, another thing I've, I've talked about before is um, in, like, the, especially in the 80s, uh, Slasher Boom, when they had a sequel, they always started, like, the opening minutes of the film were recapping the prior film. And it's, like, I get it, because at the time there wasn't, like, the, like I said, audiences weren't as savvy as we are now. There wasn't the home video market or, like, streamers and stuff like that going on as strong. Um... So a lot of times, yeah, you know, if you saw the film, you saw it that one time or however long it was playing it in your city, and then you didn't see the sequel or anything about it till the sequel came out. So a lot of times, yeah, they would put the recap to just refresh people. But with the 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 double-edged sorts of that is when you watch the Blu-rays of Friday Thirteenth or you know any other these films, and you put in the second one or the third one. After, especially if you're marathoning, you've already watched one prior, and you gotta watch that recap. You're like, yeah, no movie. I know. I just watched this. Oh no, dude, that's perfect. Go to the bathroom time. What are you talking about? That's great. It's or you know, if you're choosing to uh, enjoy these movies with certain enhancements, it's perfect time to uh, you know reload uh, or re-roll or you know go grab a fresh beer. Like, perfect, perfect. You just got to know how to use these kinds of things. But yes, I think uh, useless uh, exposition uh, in the form of characters and things like that, it is probably one of the most tedious things about watching older movies. Um, but yeah, it's it's just a byproduct of the time. Um, and also just how narrative film is and how the information is, is relayed. Um, again, because the the constraints they had with the way the cameras worked and how you had to only be able to position, you know, you probably only had a couple of setups that you could have with a camera. Mm -hmm. You know, they weren't very mobile. Um, even on dollies, it's not like you were moving them around and going everywhere and only super expensive movies had cranes and things like that. So it, it was a combination of things. Um, but yeah, sometimes it can be very, very tedious and also very funny. Yeah. Well, especially with that inspector character, it, it does. It does. At least it has that. Because the inspector is fucking hysterical. 
well, in this and movie. I think I think one of the things that I always found funny about movies like this is they could be in like some obscure German town. Everybody has British accents. <laughs> Everybody, except for the gypsy lady. Like, and then the the one person that's trying to do a gypsy accent is doing a terrible one. And then everybody else is supposed to be German, but they've got British accents. Right, and it's like even though, most... or no, actually, okay. So I'm 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 mistaken because this one it, they were in Wales, so that makes more sense. But yes, there are moments where people that are supposed to be in foreign countries do have British accents, and it's like, you know, oh hello, Fraulein, how are you? I was say what's uh, funny about it. It's always like the most stereotypical British accent you can think of. Yeah. Like, they're not even trying to be nuanced. They're like, whatever we think sounds like that, that's what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah, it's it's great. But, hey, again, product of the time. It, it has, again, certain charm to it, if you will. Um, so now, next up, the Ed Wood, the worst line. What did uh, what did you come up with? Uh, all of Bella Lugosi's grunts. <laughs> I like I like how you just say that and there's no elaboration, just all his grunts. I, I mean, yeah, all of them, all of them. That, yeah, yeah, it, again, as we've learned, a product of a studio just being like, we're going to cut your dialogue out and get, just have you grunt and hope for the best. Because you know what's universal, no matter what language you speak, grunting. Bella, just grunt. Just grunt, Bella. You got this, all right? Uh, as long as your eyes don't turn into blaz, you'll be fine. I still just love the idea that he's doing just becomes Dracula for a couple of seconds in the film. Well, some of his some of his hand movements are very like Dracula like, like the way his like hand is up and his like fingers are still like pointing down towards the ground and he's like holding his arm up. It's like it's like he's trying to fight playing Dracula, but he can't help it. His fucking arms like these what? This is, this is the only way my hands will move. So it's just like, fuck. All right, fine. And we're, we're just, just got to figure out a way to make him, like, just, just tell him to point his hands out straight. Show him how you want him to point his And there are times where he does do that, but then, like, you'll see moments where he's, like, he's doing it again. And you're just like, I'm just waiting for the fucking director in the background to fucking be like, Bella, straight, like this. <laughs> what, another fucking Nazi? Sorry, anytime I think about Bela Lugosi and how he would react, I always I always go back to Martin Landau in Ed Wood and his fucking performance as Bela Lugosi. And so, like, Bela Lugosi's voice in my head is Martin Landau doing Bela Lugosi. I was mostly laughing at the idea of the director straight like this! Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Damn it. I'm not a fucking Nazi! Oh, God. That's good. Um, Mine, yeah, I... Admittedly, with a lot of these older films, it's hard to pick because, for those who don't know, I kind of I know we talked about when we mentioned Charles about how like the switch to a more like realistic style of talking. Because um, for those who don't know, like if you're always wondering like why people talk the way they do in like older films, it's because they based it a lot a lot off of theater. So a lot of these guys were actually theater actors just making the transition over, and so that's why there's a lot of like even when they're arguing, they're letting themselves letting the other person fully say their sentence, speak, and they process it. And say their damn line. So it's a very theatrical performance, even on on film. Um, so to me, it's like it's really hard to. That just makes it like I don't know why it's always hard for me to, because of that to pick dialogue because it's like it's just delivered in a certain way that it's not even really quote unquote normal. You no, know, we talk. Um, 
But it's again that charm of watching older films. Um, but what I everybody's waiting for their turn. Yeah. <laughs> okay, he said his line. Okay, now my turn. My turn. Okay. It's my time to shine. Um, but mine was a moment with the uh, the townspeople when they are you know someone is killed in the village and they're getting ready to do the angry mob for like the fifth time, um, and someone makes a comment. Uh, what animals are around here that could kill people? And then you get like the fucking wolf noise in the background. <laughs> and I just picked the songs. I'm like, guys, come on. You know about Frankenstein. This is technically the fifth Frankenstein film. You're going to really ask that question of what animals could kill people. Now that it looks like you're in a pretty rural part of the country. You're telling me there's no wolves or like coyotes or anything out there that would maybe attempt to kill a human. Well, they even say it at one point. They're like, do you think Frankenstein's monster is still alive? Like, no, of course not. He's, he's dead. And then you hear the wolf in the background. And, and then they're like, that's the cry of a wolf. Maybe that's what it is. Let's go find it. And like, yeah, that's really smart. Run to the fucking danger. Go for it. Well, they're they're an angry mob. Like, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. It, it, I didn't realize how long Universal hold on to the angry mob trope until I was watching this. I'm like, this is the fifth Frankenstein film. They had an angry mob in Frankenstein. They had one in Bride. I'm sure they had one in Sun and Ghost. I'm like, they really held on to like this town. Just as soon as like danger was afoot, they were like, form them up. We must get our pitch, folks. Like, did they just have like a call to be like on the ready, like a whistle or something that just told them angry mob time? Probably. I mean, everybody's you know everybody's got their rotations. Like, okay, this week you're gonna have the torch. Oh, but I really wanted a pitchfork. No, your name in the rotation says that you have a pitchfork this time. I mean, a torch. You're going to get a pitchfork next week. What if we don't have a mob next week? Well, then you're just going to go back to carrying a torch. I don't know what to tell you. I don't make the rules. You know, so like, yeah, I can I can totally see. And, okay, angry mobs. I, I, I immediately think about like South Park and how they always make fun of the angry mobs. And everybody's fucking just like going rabble, 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 rabble. So yeah. Yeah. But mind. again, that that shows a trope that has existed for so long that it can be made fun of, but immediately everybody has that image in their head. They they know exactly like and even if you've never seen a, a Frankenstein movie or any movie that featured an, an angry mob at some point in it. If you see it in something like South Park that's making fun of it, but then it you actually watch the source where it comes from, you're just like, holy shit. Okay, so these are what these guys are making fun of. And then you're like, oh, yeah, I know. I can definitely see why that's that's funny, you know? Like, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, the, these, are, these are things that have always been with us in terms of cinematic tropes and things like that, and that they have been able to exist and influence things that have come out long after they've been gone. Yeah, even to um, uh, the one I was thinking of, Tam Tam did it with uh, Django Unchained, right? We had the KKK scene, and they're having their big moan of like, all right, we can all agree, the bags, while a great ideal, they're not very good. And they're having that big, long exchange about the fucking bags on their damn head because they, they can't see out the damn things, as they're saying. And it's like, yeah, even Tarantino, you could kind of see in that he's pulling. I mean, obviously, a real historical, you know, black mark there on American society. But he is also, you could probably tell, cinematically referencing these mobs we got back in the Universal Monster movies. Oh, totally. 
And I, I just love how these mobs, they're so organized. And I'm like, if you ever watch the news, mobs, no. <laughs> no. It's amazing how, like, well-organized they are in these movies. They're like, like you said, it's like, okay, so I got the pitchfork now. You got the torch. You got the, we're going to We're going to go right up there. All right? Now, no one dare go past this point. Okay? We're going to stop right here, and then we yell. And hope he comes out. Always. Yeah, it's impressive. But... With that, now that we've got our talk of angry moms out of the way, <laughs> the Steven Seagal. I couldn't find a way to segue too well to that man with angry moms. Um, the worst performance. What did you come up with? We might have the same thing. I'm not sure on this one. Bella Lugosi. Yeah, we have the same thing. Uh, um, and, and and as much as it pains me to, to say that, he just he's not he's not good as the monster. And I mean. Kudos to him for willing to take on the challenge of being under 35 pounds of makeup and still going through it. Um, that's that's commendable, and I, I'll I, I won't take anything away from that. Um, it's just his performance is just not up to par with what had been established before with um, Boris Karloff obviously being the the standard. Uh, as far as that goes, so yeah, it it at times it almost to me kind of made me feel like he was making fun of Carlos' performance in a way. Not that that was probably even intentional, if if at all. It's just pure speculation on my part, just kind mm -hmm. of how I received it. Well, speculation I know based on part of the fact that again, for those who don't know, Carlos and Lugosi had a long-standing uh, rivalry for a while there when it came to um, their films and stuff. Um, I can't. I can't remember if they ever like buried the hatchet before they both, uh, you know, respectively passed away or not. I just know that for a while there was a there was a rivalry there between the two of them. Well, it wasn't even so much of a rivalry so much as um, Bella kind of created his own problem. Um, he wanted to uh, he wanted to be in these in these movies, but um, the studio wanted somebody else. And so he went around and he actually found Karloff and suggested him for one of the roles. I think it was probably for Frankenstein's monster. Um, and he did well and he kept getting these roles. He was British. He could, you know, he could speak with no troubles. Bella, meanwhile, couldn't hide his accent, was relegated to a lot of bit movies and, slowly but surely faded into obscurity and um i think there was a quote i saw from his wife basically saying that he created his own problem uh mm -hmm. when he helped uh get Karloff his first few acting jobs um and i don't know like it was never explicitly stated that they had like a very big rivalry i think a lot of that was pushed and made quote-unquote fact from uh tim burton's movie ed wood mm -hmm. um it makes for a good movie um, mm -hmm. To think, you know, cause the way that Martin Landau delivers some of those lines um, about how much his Bela Lugosi hated Boris Karloff and shit like that. Um, I think it was more that Bella was chewed up and spit out by the machine mm -hmm. and they could get more out of Boris Karloff because he could speak and be heard. Whereas Bella was, you know, still carrying his Hungarian accent. And it just made things difficult for him because he always got relegated to being the weird, foreign, evil guy and shit like that. So 
I do remember that if you if you look at Bela Lugosi's, for anyone who's interested in like old Hollywood stuff, not even just horror, but old Hollywood history, I I I challenge you. I do. I tell everyone look up Bela Lugosi's history because this is a truly tragic story. Like you were talking about, of like someone who, you know, technically helped kickstart the Universal Monster films. Wait, Dracula, like that was the first one that was so successful, it led to what they had later on, and what we still have to this day with it. Um, and yet, if you look at a lot of stuff, it's like you said, he, you know, because of the accident, because of some other, I'm sure some, I think some other personal issues that were going on, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he was a heroin addict. Yeah, it, you know, the roles got more obscure, they got more, like I said, bit parts, and eventually he faded into obscurity when, you know, luckily, you know, the horror, horror fan base being what it is, will not ever forget him, I think, thank God. You know, he is rightfully amongst horror fans celebrated as one of the greatest actors to have ever graced the screen. Um, but it is a very tragic story. And um, kind of tying into, like, why I put him down. You know, it, I'm like you. It, it hurts. I, I, you know, it, I mean, you. to me, I, I look at people. I look at Bill Lugosi and Launch Engineer and, like, Boris Karloff as just a trifecta of, like, classic fucking cinematic horror right there for me. Um, and to see him not really, like you said, at times, you know, kind of like, almost like just kind of blindly walking around, but you can kind of see his eyes open and like, so maybe even making fun of it, performance a bit, like it's not a great performance. And, you know, granted, I'm glad I know that's where I like about develop my development health segment so much in the show is like, I know what I know now, thank God, looking it up. And I know at least like, I always, it's always, always told people, right? Like, for example, you know. Uh, look at my Friday 13th set. Jason Goes Hell to Final Friday. Not my personal favorite Friday film, but because of the context now I know how it got made and stuff like that, I kind of know, okay, well, I, I'm not going to take it on someone like Adam Marcus who was just doing his best with the film. There was other factors. Kind of thing here is like, it's hard for me to take it all, put it all on Bella Lugosi knowing that there was dialogue written, there were scenes where he was supposed to talk in the studio and went, fuck that. And for whatever reason, took it out, which led to, I mean, and I'm not saying like his delivery was great in the dialogue, but it led to probably, you know, an even worse performance. Because then we're just there going, what the, like you said, like, what are you doing, Bella? Like, you're stumbling around here. Like you said, it looks like your hands are trying to do track a little bit. You're Frankenstein. Like, and I don't know if, again, if the dialogue maybe would have helped or not, but we, you know, we'll never know. We have what we have on the screen. Yeah. Um, did you, which... Which movie were you actually talking about? Were you talking about Freddy versus Jason? Because um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say it, and I'm not gonna try and bro you on it. But Adam Marcus didn't direct Freddy versus Jason. That was Ronnie Yu. Adam Marcus. I said the final, final fire. Jason goes to hell. My bad. I okay. meant Jason goes to hell. Okay. My fault. Jason goes to hell. Yeah. Um. The there was a movie. The, we both listened to the movie crypt episode that he was on, and he explained the stuff going on with that, that movie. Such a, that's such a good fucking episode. It's a great episode, but. Yeah. Like I said, it the, like and like I said, just like with the Bella Ghost scene, does it necessarily take in the Bella Ghost scene take away my award? Unfortunately, no. In the case of you know, Chasing Goes to Hell, does it take away the fact that it's my least favorite one in the franchise? No, but I have context. I know. Okay, okay, this is yeah, it this helps. is why. Yeah. So on that note, let's go on to someone that usually doesn't like to put context in his films whatsoever. The Michael Bay. That was a good segue. That I like that one. Worst filmmaking decision, you're up. Uh, the lack of a fight 
in the movie where the poster suggests there's going to be a fight. We kind of have the that's, same thing. That's a very fucking, it's a very big offense in in my opinion. Uh, and then the fight itself is very, it, it lasts for like five minutes. Yeah. If we, that. We have actually now talked longer than the runtime of the movie itself. So think about, we've probably talked more about them fighting than they actually fought in the movie itself. Yeah, yeah, we have. Because I put roughly the same thing about, like, I I wrote it differently, but, you know, it squanders the, the cinematic matchup. Um, but, yeah, it's like, it's been so much time setting up Larry Talbot's story. And I get it. Lon Chaney is magnetic to watch on camera. So I get it. But they spend so much time setting that up. And we finally get Frankenstein's monster, who they revive and forget for, like, scenes on end. He just disappears without any mention of why he's not all of a sudden around. And then we finally get to the fight. And yeah, I, we're being generous by saying five minutes. I think it lasts like one or two. It yeah, it's it's very lackluster. It's not uh, it's not what I was expecting. Um, having never seen it before this, and even revisiting it just before the just before we recorded, I was still just like, man, this is a fucking letdown. I mean, now I will say, what we got out of it was pretty amazing. Um, the the way they used miniatures to show a dam exploding and this mm -hmm. huge torrent of water coming down and destroying Frankenstein's castle. Like that was amazing. No, I, not I will, the village though. Remember that? No, the not the village for some odd reason, because all the village people are the village people, <laughs> the villagers, the angry mob. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The mob is literally watching this happen. And then as that happens, I'm like, so they're not going to run. They're not running. No. It's almost like they know they're going to be safe, but we don't have a visual. Oh wait, the movie's over. I do. I love that. I, I was <laughs> like, hold. I was like, wait, they're not. Oh, the movie said the end. We're going to black. Okay. That's definitely like if you're watching that and you've never seen it before. You're just going. That's it. We're done. Fuck. It, now what am I going to do with the rest of my day? wonder if the village made it out of that water or not. I spent at least five minutes going, well, wait, did the did the mob survive? I was like, they blew up a dam. Yeah, there's, a, there's quite a few questions that are uh, left unanswered by the end of that. Maybe the, like, the sixth Frankenstein movie answers that. I'm going to go ahead and say no. I would love if it just opened up in the village. It's just the water stopped at the village. Just magically like a force field. All right, well, on that note, now to change things to a positive light. Our server lining, you positively took away from the film. What did you take from this? Uh, Lon Chaney Jr. and Bela Lugosi. Even though Bela Lugosi isn't firing on all cylinders, um, you still got two very legendary actors, uh, two guys that were very... Uh, the word uh very critical in establishing the universal monster legacy um you have them sharing the screen um albeit in not the most ideal circumstances um you've still got you still got two horror legends on the screen at the same time so yeah that's my silver lining that's a good one and it's a good actually segue to mine because mine was kind of going back to what i've been talking about already 
but essentially what it the legacy it 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 gave us after that like you said it gave us to you know with that having those two horror icons on screen or the actors themselves led to getting their actors involved in other sequels getting more of the actors and the characters on screen to get other monster matchups and obviously again that long-term effect of you know getting something as simple as you know not even thinking mc but something as simple as freddy versus jason you know like would that happen if you know this didn't happen you know what i mean like this kind of proved like hey people will tune into these types of films and then obviously you know studio very first Jason's development's a whole episode of its own. But it, it led to getting a film like that, or like you said, like Godzilla versus Kong, or at any era versus film that we've gotten out of it. And like I said, the just the sheer fascination with people that really love this stuff saying, What if we put these guys in the same movie together and making a shared universe? You know, how cool would that be? And you know, it, it did spark something that we are still, like I said, like I said before, we're just reaping the benefits of to this very day. Absolutely. And it kind of brings the the playground argument to to life and mm. you have you have the chance to see it play out on screen. I remember when they were doing the lead into Freddy versus Jason, they were having people like vote, like who do you mm. think is gonna win and, and all of that stuff. So I think I think it's it it's always gonna be around and mm. I do kind of hope we can get uh some kind of uh some kind of monster movie uh coming out of this. Like uh actually um when uh, Damon Leone was talking to uh, Adam Green and Joe Lynch on the movie crit, Adam was kind of throwing out the gauntlet and being like, you need to make a couple more art movies so we can have Victor Crowley versus Art the Clown. Like, hey, I'm all about it. Let's go. I, I want that so bad. Um, that would be awesome. So, and th- th- this is just an idea that's never going to go away. Um, even if it's in, in an animated format, you know, whatever the medium is, these kinds of things are always going to exist. They've always been in comic books. Uh, mm-hmm. They will continue to be in comic books. You're going to see them in, you know, shorts, cartoons, anything. It's always going to be there. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just always a fun way for people that are into these kinds of things, horror movies, monsters, uh, comics, all that kind of stuff. It's for them to kind of just have their own little thing to discuss, get into your own world and talk about goofy shit like that. No, absolutely. It's, it's, it's the, it's the, in a way, the nerd's time to shine. Like something we've talked about since kids. Like, oh, who would win? Or wouldn't be cool. And then we finally get it. Now, obviously, sometimes some have been better than others. Looking at you, Batman versus Superman. Uh, <laughs> but you know, for the ones that don't, you know, for everyone that doesn't, you know, deliver for you or for an audience, there's one right behind it to deliver and make us go, fuck yeah, that's what I've been waiting for. Um. Yeah, on that note, I think we are going to close up, close it up on the awards and move on to what other people have to say about this film and find out what's in the box. What's in the fucking box? That was like one of my better transitions I did. You're just patting yourself on the back for your transition. I always today. do. I like to just... I like to congratulate myself. Someone has to around here. Yeah, because I'm not going to. Yeah, I know. I know. Um, Well, so a lot of the reviews, there aren't really like a lot of these really fun, snarky ones. Um, Basically, the things that people really enjoy about this is the fact that it is 
for all intents and purposes, it's a Wolfman movie. Um, obviously, when you have one character that is human at some point, they are going to be able to carry the narrative weight of a movie versus something that doesn't speak. And if it does, it doesn't speak much um, and is more of a sympathetic character in that regard. At least a lot of the uh, portrayals of Frankenstein's monster have been um, with I mean, the with the limited dialogue that, you know, they, they had written for the character. Yeah. Well, I mean, any of these versus films, they tend to do that. Like even like, you know, obviously like I keep going back to Freddy vs. Jason. That's like one of the bigger horror ones we've had. Um, obviously, you know, they had to create a plot device that eventually, essentially, one of them kind of drives the plot to get to the point that we get to the versus portion of the film. But it's it's usually what happens. Godzilla versus Kong did it. They had to have something that drove one. So you usually get one monster that drives the film a bit more than the other. But as long as, obviously, like, it doesn't bother me as long as the, the versus part lives up to it. Absolutely. I mean, I, I I wish it would have been more, um, but I mean, for 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 something that kind of was the was the first of its kind, um, I guess you kind of have to start somewhere. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, like there there were um, a lot of people commenting about the set design and a lot of the things that we've already mentioned before as kind of like the general consensus for why they enjoyed the movie. Um, anytime you have movies like this you, that were largely made in studios and things like that, you're, you're going to see the, the, the set design really be the standout part of the production of the, of the film. And it's because they had to, it, you could not skimp on that aspect of it. Mm -hmm. And there was even a, a point where they're in a, uh, in a carriage or whatever and i was like pointing out I was like it's a process shot it's like i love this shit like you know using every trick you have at your disposal to make the world of this movie feel as real as possible even though for you know somebody who's watched as many movies as i've had and you know these kinds of shots the moment you see them you still enjoy it because it's it's fun for me you know it's like yeah in a way you are able to see the see the seams so to speak in in how the movie is getting made but it is it is infinitely more interesting for me to pick out moments like that and and notice the the difference between like a matte background uh that was a giant painting um and seeing how like the stage is constructed and how you can you you can always tell what's going on in there and, and how they were able to make something like that and, and make it work. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, set design is always going to be something that is very, uh, very crucial for these kinds of movies. I think I even pointed out the set design when we were watching, I was like, God, the set design in these films is, is awesome. Cause it, it always just blows me away. I know I kind of talked about that last week with, um, Roger Corman and his set design, but seeing on these classic films and like knowing that, I mean, that's all they did. They didn't shoot on location back then. It was, very rare if they very did. very rarely right. like and you had to be a very established director like that's like that's like john ford going to monument valley and making westerns like that mm. didn't happen all the time yeah it was almost yeah very rarely happened so they relied on those sets big time to sell you the fantasy that you're watching on screen now obviously nowadays they just shoot on location 
and sets have become less elaborate so you just have to try a screen screen usually in the background that they can pinch it that's not a knock i'm not here to have a debate on practical versus cg because if i'm being quite frank i'm tired of that debate i'm tired of it um <laughs> but yeah like how they were just you know these they just knew how to use everything at their disposal from like you said from having a set and then the background usually be like a painting mm-hmm. and how they made it and even then there's a lot of times like they did such a good job you don't really notice unless obviously you're looking for it but it's like pretty seamless nine times out of ten yeah sometimes you're like okay that's clearly a you know a painting but most of the time you're like oh that's pretty like seamless um obviously you know the process shot you're going to notice it um it for those who are wondering what we're talking about, watch any like parody film that makes fun of when they're driving and you see the shit in the background moving. A certain look at way. look at the look at the ending to Kill Bill Volume Two where she's driving the car. That's process shot. Mm-hmm. Or anytime she's driving and she's talking about something, it's process uh, shot. Yeah, airplane made fun of it. Um, and I think the Naked Gun did too, I believe. But probably. Um, yeah, airplane because they get the guy. And he's like driving, get to the airplane. You see like the people flying off. Because you send them on the bikes and stuff. It's yeah, it's funny. Um, but yeah, it's just cool seeing them uh, do that. And it's good to see that, you know, even on Letterboxd, there are people that, you know, are seeing that and pointing it out. You know, usually you get like your snarky, like, and I'm sure there's some hidden in there of, oh, it's just an old movie. I can't watch it. But, you know, those are the ones that kind of crush my soul. But to see people like point out, like, no, I, you know, I really like at least with the sets, what they're doing. They, they even they can take that time to appreciate these kind of things. Yeah, I uh I I didn't come across anything that was, you know, snarky and stupid. So thankfully I was spared that and my eyeballs aren't gonna have to uh aren't gonna have to melt out of my face. Okay. <laughs> on that note, that is what's in the box. People are actually being pretty positive, which doesn't happen very much on what's in the box. We usually get quite the snark levels. We did do some entertaining ones, so sometimes I'm like, God, you guys had a lot of time on your hands to write this, didn't you? Um, we're going to close that up and move on to a little housekeeping and what's happening next week on the show. Oh, so, first with housekeeping, uh, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under Filmgasm Productions. If you want to shoot us a recommendation, feel free to email us at filmgasm.gmail.com. Like I've said before, 2023 is still pretty open, so any suggestions for next year? I will take into consideration. If you'd like to donate and support us in that week, find us on Anchor. Finally, feel free to get on our site, filmgasm.com, for reviews, shows, articles, and all of our episodes. Next week, we're not doing the film we originally had planned. Um, we were going to do John Wayne's The Conqueror, but it is amazingly hard to uh, find. For those who don't know, probably for a really good reason. Um, so, after talking to Connor, who will be back next week from his trip in Germany... We, I decided to be nice to him. We're doing a James Bond movie. We settled on Octopussy. One of the best titles ever. Oh, yeah. Decided to go hard on James Bond if that's what we're doing. So, James Bond next week, Octopussy, be there to <laughs> hear me say that title a lot and probably make fun of a lot of the the names that they gave these, these poor women in James Bond films. <laughs> Ooh, boy. Um, on Filmgasm, in honor, we mentioned it earlier, in uh, Terrifier 2 earlier. So in honor of the unprecedented success of it in its very limited release, um, which, by the way, got now a 1,000-plus screens this upcoming Halloween weekend, so 
Go see it if you haven't yet. Uh, we'll be taking a look at the original one, Terrifier. The one that essentially put us where we're at now with Terrifier 2. Like, it did so well that Leone was able to make Terrifier 2, and now here we are. And hopefully, with how this one's gone, we'll get Terrifier 3. Let's do it. So, join us for that. Get ready for some gruesome carnage candy. It's probably the best way to describe that one. For those of you who have not seen Terrifier yet. Um, and on Oscar Sunday, we're going to be getting a little spooky for once. I know we don't do it often on Oscar Sunday, but we're doing it this time. It's going to be close to Halloween. And we'll be, uh, I'll be on it this time to discuss with uh, Connor and Austin the Brian De Palma classic, and in my opinion, one of Stephen King's very best adaptations, Carrie. Love me some Carrie. Oh, yeah. Looking forward to that. And I'm, oh, am I going to be getting that 4K that Screen Factory is playing out? Well, until then, when you're sitting down in a movie theater for the latest shared universe film or versus film, remember to pay your respect to the two horror icons who started it all. See you next week on Beyond the Bed. Thank <laughs> you.